0: Well, good morning. It's good to be with all of you here at Gospel of Grace. For anybody that may be new here, we do at Gospel of Grace teach verse by verse through the Bible. Bob has been working through 1 Corinthians, and I am going through the book of Matthew. Now today, we're only covering three verses, but as you're going to see, there's a lot to this passage about blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. Now today, I want to remind you that we have recently been in the studies in Matthew where Jesus has been doing various kinds of healing we saw last week where Jesus had healed a couple of blind men who ironically could see the true identity of Jesus far better than could the Pharisees and the scribes well today we're going to witness the Pharisees ascribe miracles to the power of Satan and in doing so the Pharisees are really in danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit and therefore being hardened to a point where they cannot be saved. Why? Because the role of the Holy Spirit is to use the miracles that Christ does and lead people to saving faith. Dear ones, what we're going to learn today is that if a person's heart is so hardened that they will never listen to the testimony of the Spirit, there's no chance for them to be saved. So I think the challenge really then for all people today in this passage is what about us? are our hearts so hardened that we won't accept any evidence that we see in the scriptures given to us by the spirit if our heart is that hardened there really is no hope that's a powerful message that i think we see in this text here today now with that let's begin here we only have three verses to cover and i want to before i put the verses up remind you that jesus has been doing a lot of healing he healed a bleeding woman he healed a little girl, raising her from the dead, the synagogue official's daughter. And then recall that he had even healed two blind men. Now he is going to heal a demon-possessed man. The problem is the Pharisees are going to say that he does it by the power of Satan. So that's where we pick it up here, Matthew 9:32 32 through 34. It says, as they were going out, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him after the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. And the Pharisees were saying, he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. The dear ones, let me pull up my pointer here. I want to make several points in verse 32 here. Notice it says, as they were going out, that's, of course, the house where Jesus had healed the blind men. Well, now you have a mute and demon-possessed man that was brought to him. Now, the term mute there, kofos, sometimes in your English versions, depending on which one you have, it'll be rendered dumb. But mute is better. The reason it's rendered that way is because the man couldn't speak. And I want you to see the relationship, though, between his mute condition physically and that of his demon possession. The fact that he was demon-possessed was significant. The idea of being demon-possessed in the New Testament means an evil angel, known as a demon, ends up taking over an individual's mental faculty and indwelling that person so that's what caused this man to be mute and we know that because notice in verse 33 it says after the demon was cast out the mute man spoke so there was a causal relationship between the demon possession and the fact that the man could not speak now i want you to notice here in verse 33 how matter of fact matthew is with the healing of this mute and demon-possessed man. He merely says that after the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke and the crowds were amazed. That's all he says about the miracle. And what that shows us as the careful reader is that the emphasis that Matthew has is not on the miracle in and of itself, but he's focusing on the contrast in the reactions to the miracle between that of the crowds and that of the Pharisees. The reaction of the crowds you see in blue, the reaction of the Pharisees you see in red, that's the focus that Matthew wants us to focus on. That's the point. Now, first of all, I want you to notice that as the crowd see Jesus heal once again, they're amazed. Remember that term, thaumatso? We've seen that before, that the crowds are astonished, they're amazed, they cannot believe the power that Jesus Christ has to heal the deaf, to heal the blind, to raise the lame, to raise the dead, to cast out demons. They're astonished by it. But don't be fooled into thinking that that means the masses are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They are honestly, in some sense, in a sinful condition, wrestling with who Jesus is. But just because they are amazed does not mean they believe. Yet notice their honest assessment. Notice they say in verse 33, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Nothing like this has ever happened. That's what they're saying. Now contrast that with the reaction of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, who were those who were most theologically educated at that time in Israel, notice it says, but the Pharisees were saying, he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Now that should be shocking to all of us that here the Pharisees who should know better They're ascribing Jesus Christ's power to whom to the ruler of the demons Who's the ruler of the demons? Well, it's Satan That's who the ruler of the demons is and so they're taking a work of Christ and they're saying Satan is doing it now Let me make three points to you about the reaction of the Pharisees number one I want you to notice that the Pharisees agree that Jesus is doing the miracle. There's no dispute as to whether or not this demon possessed man was really healed. So the Pharisees are agreeing that Jesus is doing the miracles. The dispute is by which power is he doing the miracle? Number two, the Pharisees have seen other miracles that Jesus Christ has done, and yet they see no redeeming merit to them. Think about how hard of heart you'd have to be to look at all of the miracles that christ has done thus far and yet ascribe no redeeming merit to it but simply say well this is done by satan number three the fact that the pharisees ascribe the miracles that christ does to satan shows an exceedingly hardened heart that's the point here in matthew chapter nine and a point that we will come back to when we get to matthew chapter 12 what the pharisees are demonstrating is often what we refer to in Christian circles as the unpardonable sin. They are blaspheming the Holy Spirit by taking the evidence that the Spirit uses to show Christ's messianic credentials. They are taking that work of the Spirit and they are ascribing it to Satan. And so what Jesus will do here and then later on in Matthew 12 is he will say that if your heart is that hardened, there's no hope for you because it's only by the testimony of the spirit that anyone can be saved that's how hardened heart they really are now i want to give you a summary slide before i come to our applications last week i showed you a summary slide that really demonstrates throughout matthew how unexpected people are those that come to faith in jesus unexpected people like blind men like canaanite women who are foreigners uh, even children they can see spiritually that jesus is the son of david the messiah when the pharisees and the scribes can't see it and so that's the irony that i think we should take note of remember i showed you last week matthew nine twenty seven. there were two blind men who ironically could see who jesus was far more clearly than the pharisees they spiritually could see that jesus was the son of david he was the messiah uh, matthew five twenty two. there's a foreign canaanite woman who can see very clearly spiritually that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of David. Matthew 20, verse 30, we find more blind men that are healed. But again, they can spiritually see that Jesus is the Son of David, that he's the Messiah, while the religious leaders of Israel can't. And remember, we came to Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, Jesus has just come into Jerusalem. One prior, one verse prior to Matthew 21, 15. In Matthew 21, 14, Jesus heals the deaf and the blind. Why is that important? Because Isaiah 35, 5 through 6 predicted when Messiah comes, he heals the deaf and the blind. So in Matthew 21, 15, right after Jesus does this, there's children in the temple. And they're crying out, Hosanna, Son of David. Literally, save us, Son of David. But knowing that the Son of David is a reference to the Messiah, literally, you could shorten it. What they're crying out is, save us, Messiah. Little children who have no status in the eyes of those in Israel, they could see who Jesus was while the Pharisees and the scribes clunt. Remember, the scribes say, and the Pharisees say, he does all of this by the power of Satan that's what they say so then we come to matthew 22 and remember i said that that was where jesus puts the pharisees to the test he asked them the theological question whose son is the messiah and they theologically know the answer he's the son of david and yet ironically jesus the son of david the messiah standing in their presence and they can't see it that's the hardness of heart that the pharisee had now when i say hardness of heart Realize that I'm talking about the heart as the center of the thought life. The center of the thought life has to do with the will, the emotions, but also the intellect. It's all three. And all three of those elements are so hardened in the Pharisee that they can't see the obvious fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. That's the point today in Matthew nine thirty-two 32-34. They take the miracles Jesus did... They say, well, he's actually doing it by the power of Satan. We're going to come to this again in Matthew chapter 12, verses 23 through 24. Here, Jesus has just healed, ironically, a man who was mute and blind because he was demon-possessed. It's almost a direct parallel. And then notice after Jesus does this demonic healing again, casting the demon out, healing the man of being mute and blind, notice the reaction, a contrast between the crowd's And the Pharisees, does everyone see that? Just like today in Matthew 9, 32 to 34. So it says all the crowds were, there's our term again, amazed. And we're saying this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Again, notice the contrast in the reaction between the crowds and the Pharisees the crowds say this man cannot be the son of David is he the Messiah they're wrestling with it yes they're born sinners like everyone else but at least they're wrestling with maybe Jesus is the Messiah contrast that with the learned Pharisee the learned Pharisee is saying what this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul The ruler of the demons. Dear ones, by the way, when I say the learned Pharisee, I'm not putting down the fact that they were learned. I'm pointing out that so hardened of heart were they that even though they had greater knowledge, they still wouldn't believe. Why? Because they didn't love the fact that the Son of David was in their midst. They would rather hold on to their positions of power and their sin than bow the knee to Jesus Christ and in their mind lose their position. That's how hardened of heart they were. And so, so biased against Jesus is that when they see his miracles, they ascribe it to the power of Beelzebul. That's the same thing that we saw today in Matthew 9, 32 to 34. Who's Beelzebul? Well, the Canaanites had a chief deity called Beelzebul. And more than likely, this is a playoff of that, Beelzebul. By the way, the Israelites would oftentimes take a, a foreign deity and they would turn the the name slightly to kind of slander the deity. Like everyone's heard of Moloch. Moloch means literally a shameful one. He's a shameful deity. But it comes from Melech, a false god who claimed to be king. And so the, the Jews changed it. Well, here Beelzebul could reflect the slang lord of the flies. That could be the idea behind it. We're not exactly sure. The point being, though, is that we know the Israelites... In the Jewish writings, we don't see it in the scriptures, but in the Jewish writings, like in the Talmud, they had various terms for Satan. For example, I'll give you three of them. They called them Belial, Mestima, Azazel. There's other ones. Here's Bilzebul. The point is these are slanderous terms for the slanderer, but certainly it's a reference to Satan. So hard of heart is the Pharisee, They take a work that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, does, and they say Satan's behind it. What Jesus is going to warn through the Scriptures is that if your heart is that hardened, you are now blaspheming the Spirit because the Spirit's role is to use the miracles Christ does to bring people to faith. If you can't hear the Spirit, therefore you can't be saved. That's blasphemy of the Spirit. That's the unpardonable sin That we're warned about in Scripture. Okay, so with that, let's come to some applications. Let's unpack this. And I have three of them here for you this morning. Number one, we must understand that while Jesus had the power to perform miracles, the Holy Spirit used the miracles to testify of Jesus' true identity. What you will see through the Scriptures is oftentimes the miracles are a Trinitarian affair. So Jesus, because he's the Son of God, he has the authority to do miracles. The Spirit has the authority to do miracles, and obviously the Father as well. My point in showing you that is sometimes people will say, well, Jesus only did his miracles by the power of the Spirit. That's not always the case. Sometimes he is the one who's doing the miracle. The point in it all is that the Spirit's role is to take the miracles and to testify as to who Christ is. So if you're so hardened of heart that you take the miracles that the Spirit uses and you always attribute them to Satan, how can you be saved? That's the point. That's the point of it all. And I think there's a great application for us at the end. What about unbelievers today? What about unbelievers today who've seen such great evidence and yet they won't believe? They have a hardened heart, much like the Pharisee. Number two, we must understand that no human being can believe in Christ without the supernatural regeneration by the Holy Spirit. We have to believe in human inability. Because if you don't believe in human inability then what do you need the Spirit for? And if you don't need the Spirit, then the blasphemy of the Spirit doesn't make any sense. So we have to have a robust understanding that it's only by regeneration of the Spirit that anyone can be saved. That's when blasphemy of the Spirit actually makes sense. You don't understand the inability of man and the absolute necessity of regeneration by the Spirit, then blasphemy of the Spirit will never make any sense to you. We have to know that. Number three, we must know that the unpardonable sin is the rejection of the Holy Spirit's testimony about Jesus' true identity. If you will always take the witness of the Spirit and ascribe it to the power of Satan, there's no hope for you. That's the message that we learn about the unpardonable sin. Okay, so let's begin with the first one. Number one, I want to begin by explaining how all three members of the Trinity are seen in the Scriptures as using their power in miraculous ways. And the reason I want you to see this is I want you to see that Jesus Christ as the second person of the Trinity had the power and the authority to do miracles. The Spirit's primary role is to use those miracles to testify about Christ. Okay, so don't think that Jesus only does his miracles by the power of the Spirit. He has the power to do them himself. The point is the Spirit uses them. Let me give you an example. Let's look at the resurrection. Notice here in Romans eight eleven. Here, Paul ascribes the power to raise Christ to the Holy Spirit. Romans 8:11, Paul says, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So everyone, notice there in red, certainly Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit was involved in the resurrection of Christ. However, what's interesting is when you get to John ten eighteen, we see Jesus also has the authority to raise himself up again. Here, Jesus is talking about his physical body. And notice in John ten eighteen he says, no one has taken it, meaning his physical body, away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. Now, I want you to notice the term authority. Some will say, well, that just means Jesus had the permission, but it doesn't mean he has the power. No, he has the power. If you have the authority in Scripture, there's power associated with that. Let me give you an example. Ironically, I'm going to use an example from Antichrist. You know, in Revelation 13:5 it says, the beast was given authority to rule for 42 months. Now, does that mean the beast doesn't have the power to do so? No, both are implied both are implied in the same way because christ has the authority to take his life up again he has the power to do so now turn your bibles if you will to acts 224 what we've seen thus far is that both the second person and the third person of the trinity are able to perform a resurrection now let's look at god the father notice here in acts 224 here the apostle peter remember he's preaching at pentecost And notice what he says regarding the resurrection. Acts 2.24, he says, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Notice here when Peter says, but God raised him up again, he's obviously referring to God the Father. So when it comes to the resurrection, we see the resurrection is a Trinitarian affair. The Father is seen as doing it, the Son is seen as doing it, and the Holy Spirit. So how do we make sense of that? Well, I think they're all involved in the resurrection. And maybe one way of looking at it is when we look at the miraculous deeds of God, the Father plans, the Son carries out, and the Holy Spirit applies. My point in showing you this is that the role of the Holy Spirit was to take the miracles that Christ did and use them as a testimony as to who Christ was. Jesus is the Messiah. How? Because the Spirit shows you that indeed He's the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament had foretold. That's the work of the Spirit. And so the primary role of the Holy Spirit is not to make people fall down and writhe on the ground. It's not to make gold uh, fillings and things come out of the vents at a, a local evangelist meeting. It's to testify about who Jesus is. That's the role of the Spirit. And we see this, I think, very profoundly in the Upper Room Discourse in John 14 through 16. In fact, let me put up John fourteen twenty six. Notice what Jesus says regarding the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, but the Helper, that's the parakletos. You'll see it used again in John fifteen twenty six. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you remember jesus is teaching this in his upper room prior to his departure and what is he claiming he's claiming that when the holy spirit is sent he will bring to remembrance all that jesus had said to whom well i think the you there is probably the apostles and so what we have to affirm is that one of the roles the holy spirit had was to bring to remembrance what christ taught in his earthly ministry so that as the apostles and the prophets of the new testament give us the scriptures, we have the very words of Christ. That's the idea. We had just in our recent Bible study on Wednesday night learned one of our memory verses, which is 2 Timothy 3.16. For all scripture is what? It's breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, rebuking, training in righteousness. The very next verse says, so that the man of God is equipped for every good work. Okay, so notice the scriptures are breathed out. Why? Because they come from the Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit here who is going to bring to remembrance to the apostles all that Christ had said so that, in fact, we are missing nothing that is significant about the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's given to us by the Spirit. We have to know from that that the primary way the Holy Spirit testifies to us is by the Scriptures. It's through the Word. That's how it works. I should say that's how he works. Okay, now let's go to John fifteen twenty six. These are easy memory verses to remember because they both end in 26. So go to John fifteen twenty six. Here, notice Jesus says, when the helper, notice the relationship, that's the paracletos from up here. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Does everyone see that? So what is the Holy Spirit going to do? He's going to testify about Christ. Now, one quick aside I want to make before I talk more about this verse. Notice up here in verse 26, the Holy Spirit, it says, the Father will send in my name. Well, notice in John 15, 26, the Holy Spirit is the one that Jesus will send from the Father. Do you know that the debate between whether the Son sent the Spirit or it was just the Father... That was the cause of the split between the Eastern and the Western church. The Western church said, well, it's both the father and the son. I think they're right. That's because I'm in the West. (laughs) I think that's the better reading of the text. When we look at the Eastern church, they say, no, it's only from the father. But again, what you have to see is the miraculous works are the, a Trinitarian affair. The father plans, the son carries it out and the spirit applies. So notice here, what is the Spirit's primary role? Bob did a wonderful Sunday school teaching on this years ago at the Fick Auditorium where he laid this out very clearly for all of us. Notice it says that he, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, will testify about me. The term testify there is the verb martureo. And the only reason I mention that is that's where we get our term martyr. What really is a martyr? A martyr is someone who has died. They have been killed because of their faith in Jesus. Because they testify of Jesus, they're martyred. Uh, Think of Polycarp. He was a friend of John the Apostle. He knew him. And he was martyred. He was murdered because of his testimony of Jesus. The role of the Holy Spirit is to testify about the person and work of Christ. Let's relate that to the passage today. What I'm claiming to you is the scriptures are telling us that the Holy Spirit takes the miracles of Christ... And says this is who Jesus is. This proves that Jesus is the Messiah. This proves that he's the son of God. This is proves that he's truly God. That he's truly man. It testifies as to the person and work of Christ. But the Pharisees take the work of the spirit. And they say Satan did it. That's the unpardonable sin. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. To be so hardened of heart. That there's no testimony. That the spirit could ever give. That you will listen to. That's the idea. Now. What I would claim is that if you're a Christian and you don't understand the depravity and the inability of mankind, the need for the work of the Spirit really makes no sense. After all, if you have the innate ability to come to faith in Jesus Christ, why do you need the Spirit? Why do you need regeneration? So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, in my humble opinion, only makes sense in light of human inability to see the need, the absolute essential need, for regeneration by the spirit so let me begin to lay out the inability of man to show us our need for the spirit romans 3 10 through 11 as we read this text remember paul is citing from both psalm 14 1 through 3 and isaiah 53 1 through 3 he's putting those together as he builds the depravity of man notice he says as it is written none is righteous no not one now let's stop there in verse 10 i want you to notice the obvious that when he says none is righteous that certainly is universal is someone willing to say well there was that guy named joe you know he was a gentile but he was pretty decent and i don't think he was really unrighteous no i think it means every person every person jew and gentile male female children every one of us none is righteous no not one Later in Romans 3, 23, Paul will double down and he'll say, all have sinned, universally, all of us. Except, of course, there is one, it's Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the God-man. But every, other than that, there's not a single person who's righteous. Notice in verse 11, that same universal principle then is applied. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Notice it is a universal negative, that there's not a single human being left to their own devices that seeks for God. Now, what do we do when we read other places in both the Old and the New Testament where, for example, God commands people to seek after him or he says, like in Hebrew, excuse me, Hebrews eleven 6, that God is the rewarder of those who seek after him. What do we do with that? Is there a contradiction in the Bible? Because after all, we cannot seek after God And not be able to seek after God at the same time in the same relationship. Well, I think the way to resolve it is to realize that only those who seek after God are those who have been given the ability by God. It's only those who end up seeking after him. Otherwise, you have a contradiction in the scriptures. Now, some will react to that and they'll say, Eric, are you telling me that God would command people to seek after him even though they don't have the power to do so. That's exactly what I'm saying. We are culpable to do it, but we don't do it because of our hardness of heart. And our hardness of heart, our sinfulness, is not God's doing, it's our own. We're on the hook for it. But that's the depravity of man. Do you know in the discourse that we had read about in Matthew chapter 5 through 7? Remember we talked about the Sermon on the Mount and one of the things Jesus commands there is that all of us are commanded to be perfect Is God is perfect. How many here believe that we can just start being perfect? That's it. I was commanded to be perfect. That's it. Tomorrow, perfect. If there's a problem on the road, it's not me. Why? I'm doing the perfect thing. It can't be me. Well, we know that we can't be perfect unless God gives us the ability to be righteous. It's His perfection, not our own. In the same way, the only one that can seek after God is one that God first sought after. And that's why it says in Luke 1910 that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's why Jesus says, You didn't choose me to his disciples, but I chose you. You see, God is the great seeker. He is the one who looks for his elect, his sheep. And he gives them the ability to believe. That's the idea. And so that's why we see it in John 6:44. He says no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, universal negative, no one can. No one can do this. There's not a single human being. And notice the term can. Can comes from the term dunamai. Dunamai has to do with ability or power. It's where we get a term for dynamite. So notice here in that Jesus is not talking about permission but ability. He's not saying that no one has the permission to come to him, but he's saying no one can come to him. No one has the ability. Do you remember when you were in grade school? You'd drink too much water. You'd raise your hand say, Teacher, can I go to the bathroom? And they would always come back saying, I don't know, can you? And it was kind of irritating, but the point that they were trying to make was to teach you there's a distinction between can and may. May is about permission. Can is about ability. You should be asking, Teacher, may I go to the bathroom? Notice here, Jesus is not saying, no one may come to me. He's not talking about permission. He's talking about ability. No one has the ability to come to him unless what? The Father who sent me draws him. The verb there for draw, el cuo, is used in the New Testament, for example, for Peter drawing his sword. Or for the apostles who are going to draw the fish in the net to the boat. Now, why do I mention El Kuo that way? Well, because Arminians who reject this teaching, what they will say was, yeah, the drawing, certainly that's essential, but it's more of a wooing. Well, R.C. Sproul, the famous theologian, once said, how many ever try to woo their sword out of the scabbard? You ever try to woo a sword? Or how about when you have to take fish into the boat, do you woo them in? Or do you have to drag them in? I think it's the latter. Dear ones, we have to be drawn. Now, let me share with you what the Arminians will do with this text. The Arminians will claim that in fact God draws all people. And they take that from John twelve thirty two. I want you to turn there. Let's delve into this. John twelve thirty two. Please turn your Bibles there. Again, John chapter twelve, verse thirty two. And I want you to see what the Arminians will do with this text, and I'm going to show you that it doesn't work. John 12:32. Now as you look at John 12:32, remember the context is you have the Feast of Passover. And in the Feast of Passover, what's so much shocking about this one is that, according to John 12:20 is there were Gentiles who were coming to it. And I'll actually have you look at that in just a moment. But notice here in John 12:32, notice what Jesus says. He says, "And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself." Now, what does it mean when Jesus says that he will be lifted up? Here, the being lifted up probably has to do with both his crucifixion, that he's lifted up on the cross, but also his being lifted up in the resurrection and the ascension. In other words, it's both the agony and the glory that go together. It's the entire work of Christ. He's going to be lifted up on a cross, but later he's going to be lifted up into the heavens. And all of that, when he accomplishes it, he says, I will draw all people to myself. Now, what the Arminians do with that is they say, aha, if God is drawing all people, then we have to affirm in John 6, 44, that indeed God draws all people. Do you see their reasoning? And therefore, whether or not someone believes or doesn't believe is dependent upon them. After all, God is drawing all people. Well, here in John 12, 32, I would say that when Jesus says he will draw all people to himself... He does not mean that he's drawing all people without exception but all people without distinction. Now why am I making that nuanced view? For two reasons. Number one, go 12 verses earlier. Look at John 12:20. Notice John 12:20. John 12:20, it says now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks in the context of john 12 32 what's fascinating is now you have gentiles and jews that are coming to this feast and so what jesus is sharing here is that at his work his ascension his crucifixion his resurrection his ascension the drawing of all men is not just going to come from the jews it's going to be gentiles as well not just jews but greeks as well not all people without exception not every single individual but both of the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, how else can we know that it's not every single human being? Well, think about it. This phrase is used in John six forty four and John six forty, where he says, and I will raise him up on the last day. That phrase, I will raise him up on the last day, is something that's only for the believer. Well, if God draws all people, and those who are drawn are going to be raised up on the last day, well, then you'd have universalism. That would mean every single human being is going to be saved. Well, the bible clearly teaches that that's not the case so certainly it's not every single human being that's going to be drawn it is in fact the elect why because again unless god overcomes our depravity we cannot be saved now what the arminians will do with this is they will make the argument that yes indeed it's true that all of humanity is so sinful that we could never come to faith on our own but the Arminian will say that God has given something called prevenient grace. This is what John Wesley believed. And what a prevenient grace is, is a first grace where every single human being is enabled to believe. And so whether you believe or you don't believe then falls back on your human will. That's the idea. Okay, but here's what I want you to see. I want you to see in Matthew 13, 11, Notice it says, and he answered them. This is Jesus. By the way, let me set the context. Remember in Matthew 13, Jesus was teaching in parables to the masses. But then he would pull his disciples aside and tell them plainly what the parable meant. Well, the disciples catch wind of this and they say, hey, Jesus, why are you doing that? Why are you telling us plainly what the parable meant? Well, you just give them parables. Jesus said, Matthew 13, 11, he says, And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Why is that so devastating against Arminianism? Because the doctrine in Arminianism of provenient grace is God gives everyone the ability to know. And so whether you believe or you don't believe, that's on you. But he gives everyone the ability the ability to believe. Is that what Jesus is saying? Why is Jesus then saying, to you it has been given, the term there, diddle me, it's a term that Bob has been wrestling with in Sunday school with us in 2 Timothy 2.25. To you it has been given to know the secrets, but to them it has not been given. If Arminianism is true, it has been given to everyone. That's not what Jesus is teaching. And at the end of the day, we have to take our doctrine In this case, either from Christ or Jacob Arminius or John Wesley. But I'm taking mine from Jesus Christ. To some it's been given to know, but not the others. Let's look at 2 Timothy 2.25. Here Paul is admonishing, really, pastors, but by extension it can extend to other Christians, how to handle false teachers. Notice he says, "...with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition..." If perhaps, perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. The role of the pastor to those who don't believe and to those who have a different teaching is to correct them with gentleness. Why? Well, notice he says, if perhaps God may grant them repentance. Notice the term grant. The term grant is the same term that you see here, Didomi. It could be rendered given, identical term. Now, if all of us had the ability within ourselves to repent, why is God depicted as having to grant it or give it? Why is he doing that? Well, because of our inability. Now, does it state in this text that God will grant it to every single human being, as the Arminian would claim for prevenient grace? Well, notice we have here an interrogative, Mepote, if perhaps... And combine that with, we actually have, I'm getting a little nerdy here, we actually have a subjunctive mood. So with the interrogative plus the subjunctive mood of this verb, what you really have is a sense of contingency. That God may grant it, and he may not grant it. To some he may grant it, and to others he may not grant it. So what do we do with human ability at that point? What do we do with Arminian and their claim that, in fact, it's been granted to everyone. Well, we have to say that that's not true. God is the one who's in charge of those who will see the truth of the gospel. And the way he does that is by work of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember in John chapter one, verses 11 through 13? He talks about those who have received, who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And remember in verse 13, he says, "They did this not by the will of the flesh or the will of man." but of God. It's the will of God, not the will of man. Why? Because the will of man is in bondage. Why is this so important with our study today? Because if we don't understand that the Holy Spirit must be the one to bring people to saving faith, the blasphemy of the Spirit makes no sense. You don't understand the dire condition someone is in if they blaspheme the Spirit if you don't see the essential need for the Spirit. But yet, throughout the scriptures, we see the only way that anyone can confess Christ, believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, as it says in Romans ten nine, is that it's by the Spirit. Notice here in 1 Corinthians twelve three, Paul says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because you and I don't seek after God. No, not one. So the Holy Spirit must regenerate us, enable us, therefore, to believe. He gives it to us. And He uses the works and the miracles of Jesus Christ to do so. Let me show you John 3 5. Remember here, ironically, Jesus is speaking to a Pharisee, Nicodemus. And Jesus answered Nicodemus. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, notice this phrase, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, we kind of glaze over at that, and sometimes it puzzles people. I know the Roman Catholics believe that that's a reference to baptism. It is not a reference to baptism. How do we know it's not? Because four verses later, Jesus is referring, actually three verses later, he's referring to something that mankind cannot control. He says the work of the Spirit is like that of the wind. You don't know where it's coming from, and you don't know where it's going. He says, so it is with those who are born of the Spirit. Now, how many in here know that you can't control the wind? You can't. Can you control it? Can you harness it? No, you can't control it. You don't know where the wind's coming from. You can't control it. So here's the point. Can you control baptism? Yes. If baptism saved, as the Roman Catholic Church believes, you could put up a baptismal font and keep bringing people all day long. In fact, if you didn't do it, you'd be kind of a mean-spirited person. If that's really what regenerated people, that's what they're claiming. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the work of the Spirit. So why is water added to it? This is what's called a hendiadys, where you take two words, water and Spirit, but you mean one thing by it, the work of the Spirit. Why is water there? One of the first promises in the Old Testament that God would pour out His Spirit is found in a 9th century prophet named Joel. In Joel 2.28, the primary metaphor of sending the Spirit is that God would pour him out on all mankind. And the significance of that then is that the Spirit won't just be upon Moses or some of the prophets, but it would be on all of God's people. Jew and Gentile, not all mankind without exception, you would have universalism. But all the mankind without distinction, Jew and Gentile, great and small, slave and free—that's the idea. And God would do what? He would pour him out. And that's why this is a direct allusion to Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-five, where God promises regeneration of the spirit is like the spirit sprinkling you, sprinkling you clean taking a heart that's so dirty it can't see remember the heart is the center of the thought life sprinkling it clean so it can see taking a dead heart and making it alive that's what jesus is saying and unless that happens you cannot enter the kingdom of god that is the essential work of the holy spirit and unless you've seen human inability it makes no sense So then we see just how bad it is to blaspheme the Spirit. If you know how bad you are and how necessary the Spirit is, now we're prepared to understand what Jesus means about blasphemy of the Spirit. So let's look at, again, we studied Matthew 9, 32-34. We're going to come to this text again in Matthew chapter 12. Let me turn to it. It's the same idea. Matthew chapter 12, verses 30 through 32. Remember, Jesus had healed blind men again, a blind, mute man who was demon-possessed, and the Pharisees say he does it by the power of Satan. That's the context of what we're reading here, just as we read in Matthew 9, 32 34. So notice how Jesus reacts to that. He says, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, second person of the Trinity, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Why is the blasphemy of the Spirit something that cannot be forgiven? Because it is a condition of the heart in which no matter how much data the Holy Spirit gives you, you always ascribe it to something else. In the Pharisees' case, they said it's done by Satan. What Jesus is warning is if your heart is that hardened, you can't be saved. If your heart is so hardened that you take the work of the Spirit and say it's done by Satan, then there's no hope for you. That is an amazing assessment by Jesus Christ. That's what blasphemy of the Spirit is about. And that should be a comfort to many people because I know over the years of being a pastor, people will come to me and they'll say, Eric, I'm concerned about committing the unpardonable sin. And one thing pastors often rightly say is if you're concerned about committing that sin, you're not committing the sin. Because those who are concerned about it, they're, they're saved. Those who aren't concerned, they're the ones who are blaspheming the Spirit. Blaspheming the Spirit is a condition of the heart where there's no evidence that could ever be supplied that anyone will listen to. Brothers and sisters, what that tells us is that the Scriptures use evidence The Holy Spirit does not ask you to believe in Jesus Christ despite evidence, but because of the evidence. That's what we have to know. So what we can conclude from all of this then is that we must not be those who have hardened our heart. I know I'm primarily teaching and preaching to the choir here at Gospel of Grace, you are believers in Jesus, but perhaps there are some out there who are listening to this on YouTube and truth be told, you've always looked at the Jesus work, the work of Jesus Christ and the miracles that he has done as something that was fiction, it was fantasy, or it was fairy tale. That's what you've taken. You said, well, we know that miracles don't happen. We know resurrections don't happen. And you've just said that's it's just all nothing but a fairy tale. I would say to you today that ironically, you're the Pharisee. That if you keep attributing the miracles that the Spirit uses to testify about Jesus Christ... Then you can't be saved. That's the warning. Do not harden your heart any longer. Today is the day to look at the evidence that the Spirit has given us and to believe it. Years ago in the 1950s, there was a mathematician. His name was Peter Stoner. He was actually the chair department head of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena College. And he was a great statistician. He was involved with mathematics, astronomy, all sorts of physics. And I want you to know that he had done a, a survey and a study on the prophecies of Jesus Christ. And he said that in, when you look at the probability of one person fulfilling just eight of the prophecies that Jesus Christ fulfilled, he said that the odds of one person fulfilling those by chance would be 1 times 10 to the 17th power. Now, how big is 10 times the 17th? Well, it's the same as, it's 1 in 100 quadrillion. So the odds of one person fulfilling the eight prophecies that he listed is 1 in 100 quadrillion. That's a very low prob- probability. Let me cite you some of these prophecies. He gave eight of them. Let's go through them. Micah 5.2. I'm doing this for the unbeliever that may be listening. Micah 5.2, there was a prophet who lived about 700 B.C., and he prophesied that when the Messiah came, he'd be born in Bethlehem. Where was Jesus born? He was born in Bethlehem, just as the prophecy foretold. That's number one. Number two, Isaiah 7.14, written 715 years prior to the birth of Christ, says that when he would be born, it'd be that of a virgin. Now, why am I citing Isaiah 7.14 and Micah 5.2? Because a human being can't control how they're born, and they can't control where they're born. They can't control that. You can't control that. So it's not just Jesus, well, I'll make these things happen. Of course, he's God, he can do that. But my point is, this is obviously supernatural. A normal human being cannot control where they're born, or how they're born. Number three, Zechariah 11.3, written 500 years prior to the time of Christ, says Messiah be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. How many pieces of silver was he betrayed by Judas with? It was 30 pieces of silver. Can you control who betrays you and how they betray you? No, a normal human being can't do that. Number four, Psalm 41.9 says that the Messiah would be betrayed by a friend. Jesus was betrayed by a friend named Judas. Psalm sixty-nine, twenty-one says that he'd be given gall and vinegar to drink. That's exactly what happened to the Messiah during his passion. Number six, Isaiah 53, 5 says that he'd be pierced through for our transgressions. Do you know piercing wasn't even used by the authorities in Isaiah's day? Isaiah 715 years in advance predicts that when the Messiah comes, he's going to be pierced through for our transgressions. It happened exactly as foretold. Isaiah 53, 9, this is the seventh one said that when the messiah would die he'd be buried with a wealthy man where was jesus buried in joseph arimathea's tomb a wealthy man's tomb let's do number eight number eight sorry don't have my fingers up right <laughs> pretty sad <laughs> psalm sixteen ten prophesied that when the messiah died he'd be raised from the dead the holy One would not see decay jesus pulled that off eight amazing prophecies all fulfilled By one man. Again, what are the odds of one person fulfilling all of those prophecies? Just those eight? And by the way, Jesus fulfills 333 historically verifiable prophecies at his first advent alone, and there's more to come in a second advent. The odds of just fulfilling just those eight is one in 100 quadrillion. Dear ones, the Bible isn't asking you out there to believe despite the evidence, it's asking you to believe. Because of the evidence, and that's why the writer of Hebrews is so adamant. In Hebrews three eight through eleven, he says, "Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years." Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, "They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways, as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest." Brothers and sisters, think about what the Israelites saw. In the wilderness, they saw the amazing hand of God. They saw miraculous deeds. But how much more you and I? How much more have you and I seen through the works of Christ testified by the Spirit? And the point is, if we harden our hearts, we're even in worse shape than those who did during the old covenant. Today, what the Bible's telling you is to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, not despite the evidence. But because of the evidence the evidence is overwhelming that jesus is exactly who he claimed to be believe upon the lord jesus christ and you will have the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life let's bow our heads in prayer heavenly father lord we do thank you that the testimony of the spirit uses the work of christ to bring people to faith we thank you heavenly father that the evidence is so overwhelming and clear that even on the dark days of life, we know these things are true. I do pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray for their perseverance in the difficult days that we have in America and around the world. We do pray that you would enable us to live lives that are pleasing to you, that we'd be salt and light in our culture, that you would give us boldness for the gospel, that you would regenerate hearts before us, that you give us ample opportunity with friends, relatives, loved ones, that they may hear the gospel, that they may be saved. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that our loved ones and our friends, our family, that we know that haven't trusted in you, that today you would roll away the stone, that they would see that Jesus is out of the tomb, that he's been raised from the dead, not despite the evidence, but all because of the evidence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we have the honor of being able to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And in the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating not only what Christ has done, but of course what Christ is going to do for us in the future marriage supper of the Lamb. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read from the text. I'm using the ESV version. I think that's what we have on the screen there. From 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26, all about the Lord's Supper. Paul wrote this. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered... Brothers and sisters, you and I have the opportunity today to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We'll remember what Christ has done for us, that through the broken body of him on the cross and his shed blood, you and I have the forgiveness of sins and access into the new covenant. And one day, he's going to come again. We're going to celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we're going to have the great Messianic banquet in Jerusalem. So what a day. And so when we take the cup and we take the bread, we can remember one day, It's going to be with the Lord. Remember, he said to all of us, it's a great promise, he would not drink of the fruit of the vine until he drank it anew with us in the Father's kingdom. That's one thing that we're looking forward to. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord's Supper, the Supper that your Son instituted on Passover, that we can know that through trust in Jesus we can be passed over the wrath of God, that our sins are not held against us anymore, all because of his shed blood, that he would die as a substitute for us to take the wrath of God for us so that we might have the righteousness of God in him. We thank you for these things. I do pray, Heavenly Father, that we'd remember this and that we'd also proclaim the fact that you're coming again to bring a glorious kingdom in which we will dine at the messianic table. We thank you for these promises. We thank you for Jesus Christ and his shed blood. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.